Welcome to the Who Cares podcast. I'm your host, Dan Hedinger. Care matters. And this podcast explores the question, how can we care better? Today, my guest is Alan Taylor, and Alan describes a very dramatic, very intense story of living with an addict when his son, Nick, was a drug addict. I do want to warn you, this podcast may not be for everybody because the contents are so intense. So uh, as much as I would like you to know about it, uh, be, be thoughtful before you start listening to it. Now, before we hear uh, Alan's dramatic story, I just want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Best Care Ministry. You can go to our website, bestcareministry.com, for our blogs and other details about care ministry. Uh, In the near future, we're even going to have some artwork on there from Nicholas, the young man in the story who was addicted to alcohol and drugs. So uh, do check out our website. Please consider making a donation so that we can continue to share these stories with others and build a culture of care. Now, Come with me and let's go into this interview with, uh, with Alan and, and hear about his son's addiction. Be listening for a couple of things. Number one, addiction hits families uh, in a blindsided way. And number two, it happens to good people. Uh, we do not need uh, to stereotype addiction, but we need to care for every family who's going through it. Uh, and number two, we'll see how many people, uh, how devastating this is, how totally devastating this is to a family. So hopefully we can be more caring and understanding when we see somebody who's gone through this and come alongside them, not to give them advice, not to correct them, but just to care about them. Now. Let's hear my interview with Alan Taylor. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for sharing your story. I, I must say, I'm, I'm really sorry for how difficult your life was during this season uh, when Nick was an addict. It, it's just really tough, and I, I appreciate you being willing to, to share it. Uh, before this session, though, uh, Tell us a little bit about your life. Help us get to know you. I know you worked in the IT world and you lived in the suburbs of Atlanta and you went to church. You had a wife and two boys. That all sounds good. What, what was life like for Alan kind of at the beginning of what we're going to share today? It was probably a, one of those idyllic lives. We had two boys, a happy marriage and a thriving family. Um, eight years of Little League uh, behind us. My son, Nick, who, who was the one who, one, one of my two sons who was turned out to be the addict, uh, he was in middle school, and it was the, quite, a, quite a good life. Uh, actually, Dan, I would probably say we we had little to no problems, you know, uh, uh, to speak of. Um, but it was the transition from high school, from, from middle school to high school is where all of the 
all of the blocks came crashing down, so to speak, with Nick and his life and his behavior. So, <clears throat> so that's when the problems. That's when the problems began. Yeah, that's when the problems started. His his first. You might even say his first week of high school. I mean, as soon as he went from middle school to high school, things started, took a turn for the worst. And it, and it turned pretty quick, too. It was not a drawn-out affair. Um, Pam and I, my wife Pam, uh, we both noticed within a matter of months that what, that something was going on, but hard-pressed to really understand it. Um, of course, we never expected anything like this. It was the farthest thing from our mind. Um, but it did happen to us, and of course, it was a 15-plus year long um, experience that uh, really took Nick down and drove the whole family down. Uh, pretty serious. It was a real blast out of left field. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, we were blindsided. Uh, I'm sure you could use that term with with his problems. We maybe perhaps thought that uh, the challenge of their academic lives, or maybe their some of their social lives, might be a challenge. But we never thought there would be a, an addiction to challenges. Wolf. You know, so that that's an important point for anybody listening, just to know that. Uh, this can sneak up on you. It can be a surprise. It's not like you were the type of family that this was going to happen to. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, I think many of the, as we've sat through various therapy sessions, group sessions and um, sessions with Nick and his therapists and the Al-Anon groups and on and on, um, there, it seems like many of the families did have problems, you know, there perhaps were divorce or um, uh, at least separation, maybe uh, some level of neglect or perhaps uh, absenteeism or maybe even abuse, you know, all those things that you hear about uh, in families that occur, but we did not have any of that. It was a pretty straight up life, um, you know. And so that, that's true, Dan, that it was probably the last thing that we expected. And probably if you had asked me back then, I would say that only people who have serious problems in their family would maybe uh, face something like this. But yeah, all that is sort of a myth. You know, I've come to see, you know, in hindsight that the the best of circumstances doesn't necessarily um, produce a, you know, a, a young adult that's thriving and successful, you know, um, and, and I'm sure the contrary is true. Um, uh, the uh, troubling and difficult childhood would not necessarily, uh, I expect, end up this way, but inevitably the people who are, who are, they're a uh, the co-addiction uh, young people in his therapy sessions, there would inevitably be, inevitably be um, 
problems in their lives and they would share those problems. And as it seemed to me, um, many of the parents of those young people would, because they had problems, because they had divorce or whatever, would tend to blame themselves for the addict's condition, you know, for their child, son or daughter uh, being an addict. They would tend to put much of the blame on themselves. But here we were, you know, we we had a lot of confidence that we didn't contribute to his um, erratic and addictive behavior um, in any way. You know, we had full confidence that we didn't, you know. Well, what what were some of the early symptoms? What when when that when it started to take that turn? Those few months, first few months of high school. What were the things that started to happen that you noticed? He stayed he stayed away from home, uh, unusually long periods of time during the during the afternoon, many times overnight, sometimes a couple of couple of two or three days, um, and we wouldn't hear from him. Um, we learned, we knew who he was with. And so I engaged that, that family, there was a single family who was sort of the initial, his initial connections, uh, some young people, uh, that were his age <clears throat> where he initially got, I think, got his feet wet into drinking and smoking marijuana and, it appeared to, with that family, we we contacted them and we um, spoke with them. And, you know, I knew where the, their home was. And I went over there a number of times to, to see what was going on and so forth. Um, but it, it, of course, widened from that point on. Um, those children didn't, even though they were involved with drinking and, say, smoking marijuana, they, they, those kids did not seem to have, did, didn't seem to affect their lives, say their school life or um, their other social aspects of their social life. But it, it, it profoundly affected Nick's. Okay. So, so Alan, as a dad, uh, how, how did you feel? Now you told us a little bit about what you did, but when when life is out of control, when it's really seems to be moving the wrong direction, uh, you're working hard in your career. Uh, you're caring for your wife, and while you say you didn't have problems, Pam was suffering with rheumatoid arthritis, and so you know that was a challenge. And 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 then you have this start veering off the course what how what were you going through at that time well i don't think i was going through anything that would be notable you know beyond just the usual challenges of a regular life you know workaday life um but it, but i did notice the problems with Nick and his changes. And I was really concerned about Nick. At first, we, we didn't know how to size it all up. You know, we didn't really know what was going on. 
So it was more a, a, an attitude in those real early weeks and months, an attitude of concern. We eventually evolved to the point where we thought that he needed some type of counseling or um, uh, uh, care to see what, just to see what was going on. So we approached a, a therapist. We approached, um, um, I, I can't remember exactly who, who it was, but it was, uh, they were a member of the local hospital um, in, in Lawrenceville. And so um, they interviewed him. And as it turned out from, unbeknownst to us, they told us straight away what was going on with Nick uh, after we described it to him and after they talked with him and, and, and they were convinced that he was in the early stages of, of a serious addiction, what could become a serious addiction. And so um, that was a therapist over at Summit Ridge Hospital in Lawrenceville, an in-house um, addiction rehab center. Um, and so what we did, he, he recommended that Nick go into the program. So we, 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 we sort of had to uh, fib to Nick. We had to tell him that we were going over there to just have a, a conversation. And we, so we convinced him to go over there. And once inside the building and we were sitting down, they locked down the whole building, all the exits, and um, it sort of trapped him in there. So how was he changing during this time? He had, he had, um, he had his driver's license, and he had gotten um, a DUI, so he was having problems with the law, with the DUI already. He was having problems with us because he was drinking and uh, staying out and disappearing on us. And just not giving any attention to his schoolwork or the things that he needed to get, give his attention to as a high schooler. How much of a span of time was this, Alan? You talked about when he went into school, when the symptoms started. Now when these things are starting to go wrong, are we talking a few months? Did this expand into a couple of years? The whole span, okay. It was six to eight months. Yeah. That period when he entered high school, I would say it was six to eight months until later that we had him in Summit Ridge uh, in the lockdown. And he would not have stayed unless he was forced to, unless he was locked in. And many of the other ones were, kids were like that too. He was locked in with a, a group of about 12 or 14 other kids that were in his same situation, his same age. How do you think that affected Nick? Did he respond positively at all? Did he get better a little bit for a while? 
Uh, first of all, I just want to commend you and your bold efforts. I mean, you it, it's clear that, that you and Pam were really trying to prevent this from derailing, and uh, I commend you for that. But how did this work for Nick? Well, it didn't work at all, and he was completely belligerent and against it and from the get-go and, and, and never really, uh, how would you say, got with the program. He was just um, belligerent and um, uh, aggressively so, in fact, um, uncooperative, refused to really participate at all in much of what anything was going on. Um, and all he wanted was to get out. That's all he wanted. He, he did not, and he did not uh, rec uh, accept himself as an addict at that point. I, Pam and I were not sure he was an addict either. It was so early on, we, you know, we aren't experts at recognizing addiction and, you know, we just, you know, layman the most and pretty ignorant layman at that when it comes to addiction and affairs of addiction. So, you know. Isn't that one of the things that makes this so difficult? None of us are trained for it. None of us expect it. And that's one of the things that makes this so awful is uh, if, if we could in our parenting classes learn, okay, now when your child starts to do this, then you do this, but it is just not an exact science and none of us are prepared for it in the first place. That's for sure. Uh, it took, it probably took Pam and I a couple of years just to get our brain around what was going on. Really did. Before even we acknowledged that he had a serious problem. So we, we talked about the first six months and now you mentioned a couple of years. So is this just going on and off through these years or is it just steadily on? Uh, how, do, how do we get from six months to two years when you really knew what you were dealing with? Oh yeah, it, it, was, it was on and not off a bit. It was, he was full steam ahead. Uh, totally addicted and all the compulsive behaviors that go along with it, he was exhibiting those. He would do just about anything to, to get money to buy alcohol and drugs, just about anything. And what probably what is most obvious, at least was to me, was how his priorities of life changed, how the things that normally would be a priority to a young person at his age um, were not necessarily, they, they were not high priority. His only priority was to get high, was to get alcohol and marijuana and get high. And then it, it, it took a while to, to really realize what his motives were and what the behaviors that we saw were all about. So, yeah, it, you know, I think that it hit me first. Uh, Pam sort of lingered in, in the arena of the mental arena where 
she thought maybe the incidents that we were he was going through would be were just singular incidents, you know, that they didn't reflect a larger underlying problem, right? So I think I think it hit me first that Nick Nick's problems were all of the problems that he was facing and had created for himself were a result of a ongoing serious addiction, not just uh, bad luck or, um, you know, poor, poor uh, current judgment or whatnot on his part, but just serious, uh, you know, serious problem. So it was a real state of being. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And and then all the behaviors, of course, that went along with that. It was, um, yeah, and it took a while to really see that. It was not real obvious. There, I mean, it was, uh, there may even have been some resistance on our part to acknowledge that he was, even though we observed addictive behavior, um, it's still hard to accept the fact that your child is an addict. So it, I think it took a while. And then eventually, though, we began to start conversations about how to deal with a serious addiction, you know? So, you know, but early on, I don't believe we, we didn't have those types of conversations. We were just getting, getting going, so to speak. You know, I bet you for people listening, that will be a very helpful point you just made. Because, you know, to kind of recap what we've talked about so far, number one, you're blindsided. Number two, nobody's prepared for this and you don't know what to do. And it can take up to a couple of years to even figure out what's actually going on and that this is a real state of being. Uh, in a minute, I'd like to hear. That's right. In a minute, I'd like to hear about the next phase, and 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 as this is becoming an ongoing problem, some of the events that happened that you've told me before. But just before you talk about that, I I want to hear about how did it affect you emotionally? You told me one time you were kind of becoming sullen and impatient at work, and your boss had to confront you. What's it like? emotionally um, living with an addict in the house? How, how were you feeling during that time? Well, the longer we went, the more, I think the more angry I became, the prolonged stress. There was what I often call a crisis du jour. Every day there was another crisis in Nick's life that you know, demanded our attention emotionally, um, our finances, you know, um, re- required huge, uh, just presented themselves as huge problems. So this was things from anywhere from Nick uh, spending, uh, getting credit cards and spending, you know, lavishly to stealing, um, stealing our credit cards and buying things, um, stealing our uh, stealing jewelry from his mother. His mother had RA, like you mentioned, and she had to begin to wear a bag 
around her um, shoulder to keep her medicine in 24 hours a day because Nick would steal her meds. So all of this was angering me, uh, and, and it caused me to go into sort of a, a, a period of life where it changed my personality, really. In, in a way, it, it made me very the prolonged stress, uh, made me real um, uh, kind of hard-nosed, made me real critical of people around me, um, made me very judgmental, um, have very short um, uh, a, a trigger for um, being angry, you know, getting angry, go from zero to 100 in no time, you know. So th those were the internal things that I was experiencing and going through, and it was showing at work, just like you mentioned, and of course, showing at home between, uh, created a rift between Pam and, and me. Um, while I was going through this, probably best described as hyper anger period, Pam was going through a hyper withdrawal period. That was more her reaction. She would just withdraw um, and cut off from the rest, you know, from me and from Matthew and from her whole family, you know. So it was it was affecting both of us differently, but but both of us profoundly. That is so important for all of us to understand. This addiction takes such a dramatic toll on the family, and it's a toll. And I think sometimes when we're at the grocery store or we're at work and we see somebody who's having a bad day, we kind of say, you want to say, hey, knock it off. You know, maybe we ought to take a listen to what they're going through, because if we were in the same boat, we might not be doing any better. I, I just don't know how you even endured it, Alan. Uh, it sounds like such an incredibly difficult time. I don't blame you a bit for feeling that way, and I, I'm sorry you did. When you were going through that, did, did you have any help? Did you have any friends that supported you or family or, or even... Did anybody really screw up by giving you advice and telling you what not to do? Uh, what were other people like to you? Um, I didn't really, we really didn't have any help, Dan, as, uh, that I re recall or remember. Um, I think there was some, uh, some advice coming from different quarters. Um, one of the pieces of advice that seemed that I remember seemed to be pretty come up pretty regularly was that we should uh, kick kick Nick out of the house, right? Just kick him out and let him. Uh, you hear people say, "Let him hit rock bottom." You know, you hear that term. And so uh, there was a couple of times that we did that. Um, however, I, I've come to you know. Years later now, I'll look back at, at that, and I can see that this the notion of kicking an, kicking an addict out of the house, you know, a young addict, or even perhaps even an old one, I'm not sure, but um, it, it, it's something of a, I guess you'd say a misnotion or a myth 
because you you never really we never really disconnected from Nick emotionally, and his problems never left uh, never left us for a minute because he would call, he would be show up on our doorstep, he would cause problems in the community. It was um, on and on. Um, you know, even though there were those periods he didn't live right under our roof, it was a constant problem. There was still the crisis that he created for himself and us. Um, there was still a crisis du jour, even when he... Yes, that, yes, that's right. Exactly right. Alan, is there anything somebody could have done that you would have appreciated? Uh, any, is there, is there, would it have been helpful if somebody would have just come alongside you and not given you advice and listened to you? Would it have been helpful to know you had people praying for you, not only for Nick to get better, but just to encourage you and, 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 help you know people were rooting for you is there anything anybody could have done so if we know somebody like that today is there anything we can do for them well you know probably the um i've I've been exposed to the stephen ministry i was a stephen minister for a a a period even during that time that that nick was an addict i was a stephen minister and I often thought that rather than being a Stephen minister, I probably needed a Stephen minister, you know, to to be a caregiver and me be a care receiver rather than the other way around. Um, so, but I, I, we didn't really get much help. We we were we um, had a short brush with Al-Anon, and the folks in Al-Anon seemed to. The way they spoke and talked in the group session seemed to have a somewhat of a handle on how to be successful, yet how to be successful in spite of the fact that you have an addict for a child, you know. Um, they seem to, some of them seem to have a handle on that, um, but I never could get to where they were psychologically, emotionally, or in any other way. But so I think they were encouraging and, and helpful and maybe gave me a glimpse of what where I needed to be or how I could help myself. But I never could get there, never could get to that point. Alan, uh, I'd like you to share with us two stories uh, and maybe I'll help you through both of them. Just to let people know how bad and severe this was. Uh, we're going to fast forward a few years. I don't remember how many years this was, but the story when Nick did not pay his dealers and when they took him up to the North Georgia mountains and they didn't kill him, but they made his life miserable. Tell us about that event. And and where was that in the timeline? Yeah, that was a long, that was a long about 20 uh, 14, a year before his death, uh, somewhere along in there, he had stolen some drugs from supposedly his friends, his acquaintances, his drug acquaintances, 
and they found out about it. And as a punishment or just to, to be vindictive or whatever, they took Nick, <clears throat> it was dead of winter, and they took Nick, r drove him way up into the mountains where it's real cold, took his coat off, and he just had a T-shirt on and dumped him on the side of the road. And so uh, when he, by the time he called me, he had been, he was in a patrol car and the patrol, patrolmen were bringing him back to um, Gwinnett County where our home was. But uh, he had taken refuge in a, a small um, um, post office up there in the little town where he, they, they dumped him. And so the police found him in there and had, I guess, had some amount of mercy on him. And rather than lock him up or anything, they drove him back home. And in fact, they crossed several counties and took turns from one county to the other, the next, to bring him back to Cornette and bring him home. It was very generous of them. It left a very favorable impression on Nick. Uh, of course, he always had a poor impression of law enforcement because, you know, they were always on his case. You know, he was always, you know, a foul of the law. But uh, on this occasion, they helped him a great deal. They brought him back home. Probably saved his life. He could have frozen up there. You know, that when you told me that story, it, it just was such an intense and incredible story. It made me see how severe addiction really is. It's more than just a bad habit. It's, it's even more than rebellion. Oh, yeah. I mean, the addiction controls yes. the person. They are imprisoned by it. Yes, that's right. It, it drove him. It, it just drives a, a person. It's a fearful, fearful thing. Uh, it's scary. Addiction is scary. I mean, I've seen it up close, and it's so scary. See what how it controls a person. So one other story I want you to tell before we tell the story of the emergency room call. Uh, one night, Nick is in the house, and you you confront him, and the end of this story, you end up in the hospital. Tell us about that event. Right. That really started one morning, early in the morning. And Nick was not allowed to drive our cars. He was um, not insured because of his multiple DUIs and no license. He was not insured to drive our, our cars, even though he lived in our household and he was of driving age. Right. So this morning he wanted to, on this occasion, he wanted to used the car, wanted Pam's car. And so I told him no, and no uncertain terms that he wasn't going to drive the car and reminded him of the situation. But he wasn't having no for an answer. And so it quickly that became a, a heated argument. And um, the next thing I knew, I woke up, I thought I remember waking up in the ambulance. I vaguely remember that, but I did wake up eventually in the ICU. And uh, I didn't know what had happened, except they told me what had happened. Nick had sucker punched me. And that was, I was out. 
it just about broke my neck when he punched me. Uh, it, uh, I was in ICU because I couldn't use my hands. The nerves in my neck and spinal column had been inflamed and traumatized, and my it was like my hands were on fire and I couldn't use them. Um, so it was but the neurosurgeon told me I was very lucky that it didn't just break break my neck. It only traumatized my spinal cord. Yeah, it's it's un, unbelievable. Uh, Alan, I'm not trying to be voyeuristic by hearing all these details. I just think for those of us who have not experienced what you've experienced, we don't understand. By you telling us these things, we get a little bit of a glimpse and it it moves our hearts and hopefully it moves our hearts seriously enough to to care about families that are going through this, to to pray like crazy, to do everything we can to, to stop this in our culture because it's just, just horrible. Uh, one more sad story, if you would share with us, and I wish this part of your story had a happy ending. Unfortunately, it does not. So tell us the story of the night the doctor called you. Right. Yeah, we were in bed, had just gone to bed, and we're probably half asleep when the phone rang. Pam answered it. There was some amount of conversation, short one, and she handed me the phone. And the man on the other end said, introduced himself as Dr. Vermeer. I'll remember that name forever, like the artist. He said, I'm Dr. Vermeer, and I am sorry to tell you this over the phone, but I just pronounced your son dead. He went on to tell me where he was, what emergency room he was, where he was, and um, it was kind of, I would say, one of those outer, out-of-body experiences. That's how it felt. I thought I was dreaming. Um, Pam understood from our conversation the gist of what was going on, but it, but both of us, we. Neither one of us hardly believed it. Um, so he, he put a social worker on there at the hospital, and she explained more what was going on and told us we needed to come up there right, right away. So we got dressed, and we drove over there. It was um, on Pleasant Hill Drive uh, over in Gwinnett County, about 10 miles from our house, where the they had the emergency EMTs had taken him. And when I got there, when we got there, um, he was dead. He was laying on the, in the um, treatment, an emergency treatment center with a tube down his throat. Wires were attached to him. It looked like they had just gone through a battle to try to save his life, but, but failed. He was the... Um, the um, uh, the um, table he was on was just a stainless steel slab, and they gave us a two-seat bench to, so we could pull up and sit beside him. By that time, we were pretty emotional, needless to say. We were weeping, and, you know, we knew what was going on, and we were keenly aware of what had just happened, and but we were right in the middle of the emotional blast of it, you know. So 
after it seemed maybe 30 minutes or maybe more, 40 minutes, we wept and to, I guess to the point we couldn't weep anymore. It was just so bad, the situation. We, uh, we turned around and we left the hospital um, and drove home. I can't really remember much of that night after that. I don't even know if we went to sleep or not. We must have. But uh, it was, um, you know, an experience that no parent ever wants, of course. Oh, Alan, it's, a, and it's an experience we don't even want for our worst enemy, and let alone for a friend. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Let's, let's hit the fast forward button a little while again, because we, we need to wrap up here. You've made a pretty good recovery. I know you never get over grief. I know this is a part of your story, and I'm sorry it's a sad part of your story. Uh, but for people who are listening, I want to give them some hope, too, that you can go through something this difficult and and still find uh, a, a future and, and find some sense of relief. Can, is that true of you? Yes, that is true, Dan. Um, I feel like it's been seven years now since since that incident, since he died. Um, we buried him twenty uh, in February uh, twenty fifteen, February fourteenth, twenty fifteen, and uh, it took us a while. Took Pam and I a while to get our senses back. Uh, but eventually, as time went on, we became more conscious of our own lives and um, the fact that we had a good life and that there was no reason that that this this whole affair with Nick should should uh, should discolor the rest of our life. And so eventually we just came back. I came back from that lost place where I was so angry. All that anger just eventually took a few months to, it all disappeared. I came kind of came back to myself. Um, uh, Pam began to respond and, you know, not be so withdrawn. And, uh, and now, uh, as time has gone on, I think that the, probably the best part of my life is ahead of me. And my life is not, um, how would you say, crippled by that whole series of events. Um, I, I have said this on a couple of occasions. The real tragedy might have been if Nick had lived because his life and his behavior were so unsustainable. He could not have any way continued that life that behavior, that uh, addictive behavior for very long. It was just going to kill him. And we somehow knew in the back of our minds that it wasn't going to end good, but we just didn't know how it was going to end. You know, there was no good ending for that. And we knew that. But ideally, would, we would have wanted Nick to recover and be a, you know, be a functioning adult. That would have been the uh, the, the winning result, you know, a winning end to that horrible war 
but we just, you know, we didn't win it. We lost, you know, we fought a, a hard fight and then in the end we lost, which, you know, it's sad. It, it's terrible, but it's not crippled my life. I'm 70 years old now, 70 plus, and I'm looking forward to the best years of my life. Um, I just am, I'm not beat down by that. You know, I, I'm come, I've come through it. And I think God got, brought me through it. Um, that's all I can say, that it was God's hand of blessing and help. Uh, that he's, you know, that was definitely the valley of the shadow of death, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm through it. And he was with you. You didn't go through the valley of the shadow of death alone. Well, I have to say I felt alone, but looking back, I don't believe I was. Alan, thank you for sharing that story. I, I'm not even quite, that is such a profound story and such an intense story. I'm not even quite sure how to end it. I think you and I need to continue the conversation and, and talk some other times. And maybe the way we follow up is by people who hear this, they can respond to uh, to my website at uh, bestcareministry.com and ask questions. Uh, I want to post some of Nick's artwork on the blog so people can see what a talented person he was. And I hope our talk helps everybody understand that uh, addiction is powerful, it's devastating, it steals lives. Uh, and it does that for, I mean, everybody that has it matters. And there, Nick was a cute kid, and it's so sad. And uh, you're a great yeah. family, and I'm just so sorry you suffered with this. And I, I I'm sad for families who are going through it now, and I hope they find a little help here and maybe even the courage to reach out. So, Alan, thank you so much for sharing your story. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Alan, for sharing your story, for being so open and vulnerable. And you know, for all of us who listened, if, if you know somebody like that in your life, I hope hearing Alan share will, will help you know a little bit more what to do. And if you're going through something desperate like Alan's going through, I, I hope you'll find encouragement in it and find somebody that you can talk to or have walk alongside you so you can get through such a difficult time. Because that's what we're trying to do here at Best Care Ministry is learn how to care for other people going through tough times. So thanks again, Alan, for sharing your story. And I need to thank some other people as well. Zach Carter wrote and performed the opening music. Thanks, Zach. Jim Hedinger's composition, In the Midst of the Storm, is our closing song. Jim's music is calming and comforting, and you can find more of his music on Spotify or Apple and also on homebydark.com. Thank you, Andrew Hedinger, for producing and editing this podcast. You're a great help. I couldn't do it without you. This podcast is brought to you by Best Care Ministry. Please help us grow by sharing this podcast with colleagues, family, friends, anybody you think it can help, share it. And visit our website, bestcareministry.com. 
You'll find a lot of blogs there with more real-life stories, resources to help in care ministry, and organizations that provide specialized care. You'll also find opportunities connect with people in the care ministry world. Best Care Ministry is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation so that we can reach more people, offer more resources, and help people thrive in their care ministries so that more people will feel God's love. Now take two minutes and listen to the music of Jim Hedinger. Let it be a contemplative time of self-care. Be still, be thoughtful, and see what you hear. Thank you.